This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams, and you're listening to the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is the CEO of Longines, Mr. Matthias Breschen. Hey, Matthias, how are you? I'm fine, thank you very much. Happy to be back in LA. This is uh, an exciting show because I'm actually in person with you. Most of the Superlative Podcast episodes are done remotely, so we're having a computer conversation. Uh, but here we are together in Los Angeles, and I hope that this represents more of the show because it's really fun when you get to have these conversations in person. You just told me that this is the first time in a while that you've traveled. How does it feel? It feels very good. Uh, I think the past two years for most of us were very, really, really difficult. Uh, in particular, because uh, I joined Longin, uh, it was in first um, uh, of July in uh, 2020. So when I joined, uh, this was a horrible moment because uh, almost all our point of sales around the world were closed. Uh, the first half 2020, as you remember, uh, was really terrible for all of us. Uh, fortunately, uh, the situation then really changed, uh, at least for some countries, in particular in Asia, because they got out uh, in the first step from this uh, COVID crisis uh, faster than uh, the European or American countries. Uh, uh, and then uh, we were actually able to realize already in August 2020 a turnover that was above August 2019. And the second half of 2020 was really good, but we were not able to catch up with what we lost in the first half. Uh, however, it was a very good sign. Uh, and also 21 was really a good year for us. Uh, uh, actually, until September, I was convinced that, that we are going to make a, a historical record year with Longines. Uh, but then in too many countries in the past uh, four months of 2021, uh, uh, too many stores uh, were closed. Uh, so we were not able really to uh, get there. It was We were very close to our record year 2019-18. They were pretty much at the same level. Uh, but now with all the novelties that we have for 2022, I'm convinced uh, that uh, yes, 2022 will be a historical uh, record year, unless we have again things happen that we cannot uh, uh, influence uh, at all. What do you count for some of that success? Because I know that it's a bit counterintuitive. The pandemic saw a lot less opportunities to travel and socialize, which is where a lot of people like to wear their watches. Yet a lot of brands reported um, a lot of success. And of course, um, that's a topic that's been discussed a, a whole lot by us. But from your perspective, uh, what do you account for some of this success despite uh, the counterintuitiveness of it? I think uh, one point that was uh, extremely important for us uh, was uh, that uh, COVID showed us how, uh, how important the domestic market are. Uh, in Europe, the U.S., uh, and we forgot about this probably in the past uh, 10 to 20 years because, uh, uh, as you know, uh, watch sales became extremely strong in Asia and also to Asian tourists visiting foreign countries. Uh, so it really was a sort of a wake-up call also for us uh, because uh, it showed us again that uh, we need to focus a lot more on the domestic customers, which we actually then really strongly did in the past uh, two years. Uh, and I think also that uh, people, uh, because uh, suddenly they couldn't spend any more money for traveling, uh, for uh, restaurants, uh, for uh, uh, yeah, for for any leisure activity, huh? like uh, going to the theater or uh, or doing other leisure activities. Uh, so I think one of the first possibility for people 
Now, to do something good for them was actually uh, spending uh, uh, and investing money in watches. Uh, and uh, the watch business uh, developed in particular in 21 uh, exceptionally good. Uh, and uh, Longines, I think that's, uh, that also shows the strength of a brand uh, that even uh, when you have difficult times, uh, those uh, major uh, strong brands, uh, they remain strong. What I think is interesting is a lot of watch brands realized right away how much the internet was so integral to the watch industry today. Um, people through isolation were able to still do a lot of business. What does that mean? That means that so much of the watch industry was already online. And we knew this, but now there's a lot of data to demonstrate it. And so I think it's placed a lot more of importance on uh, the digital aspect, even though, of course, the real world element is so important. You personally, as a manager, what did you learn about the importance of the internet or strategies that work, but, or, and, or maybe overall how it's supposed to fit into your more long-term vision now? Well, I think it was extremely important to have an uh, e-com presence uh, in all countries uh, around the world. Uh, so uh, we had a very uh, ambitious project uh, uh, by, for the second half in, uh, in uh, 2020. And by the end of 2020, uh, almost all our countries were covered uh, with uh, an e-com presence uh, and the beginning of uh, uh, 21, uh, all of them. But it also showed us uh, that uh, uh, I think uh, the link between e-com and uh, brick and mortar for products like watches uh, is very important. And we certainly cannot uh, count only on e-com for the future. We need brick and mortar because we are selling a very emotional product. Uh, so bringing this uh, in an environment uh, that you uh, just cannot communicate uh, uh, only on the on the on the on the internet uh, uh, is really probably the solution that uh, we are going to follow in the future. And uh, this works uh, extremely well. Huh? We saw, for example, a lot of customers. Of course, they go on online um, late in the evening or over the weekends uh, when in some countries even stores are closed. Uh, then they make a pre-selection of watches. They know exactly what they have chosen will be available when they then take an appointment and go to a store to find out about the watches. But they still want to touch them physically. Launchings always does a good job of seeming to come out with what the market wants. You seem to have your, your fingers on the pulse of what's selling and things like that. Where are you getting some of that information and what is it about the way that you're structured right now which allows the product to seem to really match what people um, are talking about, what seems to be popular in the market? Well, I think for me, uh, since I arrived uh, uh, two years ago in Longines, it was very important to really find out what made Longines so strong uh, in the past uh, 20 years because Longines was in this past 20 years, probably one of the most successful uh, brands uh, in uh, the whole uh, Swatch, uh, watch uh, industry, Swiss watch industry. And uh, it never is the brand when there is a CEO change that needs to adapt to the CEO, but it's the CEO that needs uh, to adapt uh, to the brand. So my role was, of course, uh, to find out what made Longines so strong and then make sure that we take these points, uh, in, develop them, evolve them to keep... Uh, the brand successful also for the coming 20 years. When you became the CEO, I believe it was in 2020, correct? Um, you were in a very interesting position because the person before you wasn't one of the sort of typical migratory CEOs, but was an individual that was there for a long time, talking about Mr. Uh, Walter Von Connell, who, correct me if I'm wrong, started at a very humble position in Longines, worked his way up, was there when it was an independent company, and was the CEO for 40-something years, I believe? 
Exactly, yes. Uh, and uh, I really have a lot of respect uh, for him. Uh, and he did uh, really a fantastic job and uh, definitely contributed a lot together with the Longines team. That Longines became uh, one of the uh, four leading brands in the Swiss watch industry. Uh, and that was really a very big uh, success. And uh, now it's up to me that uh, to make sure that this continues like that. But what was that like? Because it's such an uncommon situation to enter as a manager with such an entrenched idea of who the manager is supposed to be. Because pretty much everyone at the company started with the same CEO. Like no one had any different experience. And you have like cement shoes to fill, right? What was that like? I'm just curious. Well, I think uh, the importance is uh, that uh, uh, the team feels that uh, you have uh, a respect for what they have achieved in the past. You have a respect for the brand. And if you want to be successful, that you know you need also the support of the team. Huh? And then, of course, uh, it depends also uh, on the way uh, you set the priorities uh, for the future, if then immediately you see if they will follow you or not. Huh? And I think when you look at the success factors of the brand in the past years, it certainly was uh, multiple. I think uh, one of them was that uh, the brand sells equally well to women and men, which is very rare in the watch industry because in many cases it's 80-20, uh, either in the one or the other way. Uh, we were uh, equally strong also for classic and uh, uh, sport watches. Uh, and... Uh, and this was maybe for me, uh, despite the reason, the fact that I was already more than 20 years in the watch industry, the biggest surprise and the biggest positive surprise when I joined Launching is to find out how rich, how unique the heritage and history of this brand is. Uh, and uh, this is exactly where we are going to start because uh, even the brand used the heritage and history a lot in the past. But I think there are still so many things uh, that uh, very few or even sometimes uh, none of the consumers know about it. There's amazing stories, amazing yeah, ones. Exactly, yes. But we have, you know, we don't have to make up stories because uh, we have the luxury almost that we can choose from all the super nice uh, uh, achievements that the brand has done in the past uh, to select the best of them to uh, bring them back uh, to present. I'll tell you a funny story. So I don't remember what year it was, but it was the, the Prix de Diane, this uh, horse race uh, outside of Paris that Longines invited me to. And uh, Mr. Von Connell was there. And he was a, a playful guy, as you know. Um, and I remember we were having a little bit of a group presentation. Uh, and there was some journalists, and there was an opportunity to ask questions. And once again, I'm the only one that seems to have any real interest in the brand. And rather than sort of answer me, he was like, okay, I have something for you. And knowing that, of course, we're traveling and we're, our luggage is already heavy, he gives me the Longines Movement book. That's like this 30-pound <laughs> book. He's like, here, take this with you. You're so interested. Read this. And um, you know, that was his playful way of you know, doing that. And, I, and I, I enjoyed the banter. But this book that he gave me was such a wonderful gift because... You know, I think it was every movement that Longines had developed when it was a totally independent company prior to the Swatch Group coming and saving a bunch of brands. Um, and you're right, uh, just that alone. And then, of course, there's the, the Lindbergh story, which is cool, and many other types of things. Um, I remember, and I'll tell you another story. This is when I was very young. I had a girlfriend, and her grandfather was like, oh, there's a guy to talk to. I met him, and he's like, let me show you something. 
And he's like, I bought this when I retired. I'd wanted this my entire life. I wanted a very thin gold watch. And he pulls out this Longines on a gold bracelet, and it was you know, the very thin quartz one. And it was such an aspirational thing to him. And this is, again, before I was considering myself a watch collector at all, but I just remember this experience of this, you know, this guy, I think he was like a judge, and he was so excited about it. He just needed to show it to someone. You know what I mean? It wasn't like we were talking about watches. He's just like, hey, check this out. And there's very few brands on the market today that have these types of people that have developed these emotional desires for them. And that's a great position for, for Longines to be in. You know that uh, the watch, I'm not sure if you have already done it, uh, but the Longines is, uh, I'm not sure if it's the only one or there are a few other ones. We are able to track every single watch that left uh, the Longines factory since 1867. Wow. By the serial number. And we can tell exactly the date of the production, to whom we sold it, and most important, uh, we know the exact list of every single component that has to be inside. And then we offer actually to uh, uh, launching owners the possibility of uh, sending us the watch and we make a certificate of authenticity. We take the watch apart and then we check all the components if they're authentic or not. And in most of the cases, we have a, still a big stock of old components. We are able to restore them or if at a certain point of time they were replaced with non-original components, uh, we can actually put again original components inside. So is that a big part of the business? It started to really explode in the past five years. Uh, so vintage watches, and I would say the appreciation for vintage watches totally changed. Uh, and uh, we have also now started with Longchain uh, to install in our recently opened uh, store in Geneva, uh, a collector's corner. I do not like uh, the, the word pre-owned watches a lot because I know that uh, many uh, use these terms. Uh, I don't like it because it sounds a little bit like used cars. Huh? So I think collector's watches is, uh, is, a, is more noble and does really more reflect uh, because these pieces are emotional pieces and it's fantastic to see that they really gain value over time. Huh? For example, in the vintage watches that we uh, sold since the opening of the Geneva Boutique, uh, uh, all these watches were sold at retail prices that are far beyond uh, what our average retail price is today. But it shows that really the value is increasing. And we just sold uh, uh, two weeks ago uh, a chronograph for uh, uh, more than uh, 12,000 US dollars. So let's, let's explain this context a little bit because I think it's a very smart thing that the brand is doing where you have as a side of the business, restoration and the potential to resale these historic models, where right now, let's say you bought a vintage watch from a particular brand, the brand offers no ability to send that watch to them to get it restored. You'd have to go out and find, hopefully, some specialists somewhere. But it seems that it could be a very good part of the business if the brand itself, because many brands today have historic pieces, offered as a service an official restoration where the consumer felt confident that it would be done right and there wasn't any sort of um, risk involved because the brand would be in the best position to do that. Um, do you recommend, would you say to other brands, you should consider that because that's a good, a good area of growth? 
Well, I do not really want to give advices to other brands because... Uh, <laughs> it's a competitive I, industry. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and every brand has its own uh, DNA, so I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's probably or it could be a bit uh, arrogant to really give them uh, uh, advices like this. But for Longin, I think because we have this, this unique, uh, rich heritage and history... Uh, not only for the vintage watches is something very unique uh, with this uh, uh, atelier d'héritage that we have, but also uh, for our future strategy, it's very important because uh, we are definitely going uh, to uh, focus a lot more on our milestones uh, of all the inventions that Longin has done in the past to bring them back uh, to present uh, in certainly contemporary timepieces using state-of-the-art technology, but they will allow us to recall that it was Longin that invented uh, the high-frequency loop movement, that Longin invented the uh, GMT movement, that Longin invented uh, the flyback movement, that Longin invented uh, the turning bezel, etc., etc. So there are so many fantastic things uh, to tell about, and it's all authentic. It all belongs to us because it's the history of the brand. So... I think for Longin, it totally makes sense uh, uh, to do exactly what we said, uh, that we are going into this, uh, this uh, collector's uh, watch industry also, also in our own stores. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we definitely will, will use also this, uh, this very rich heritage uh, for our future product strategy. I'm also thinking about the value of, over time, having more and more nicely restored historic watches out there, these watches being on wrists and in, on display, they elevate the brand, right? Absolutely. So to a degree, having this larger and larger corpus of historic watches that look good. It's like, imagine if every old Mercedes on the road looked terrible or good. Mercedes wants the old ones to look nice, right? Because it adds esteem to today's cars. Same thing with watches, you want them to all look nice. So there's an interest on your end to, to collect those watches and restore them. So um, to a degree, it's sort of this symbiotic thing where you want people to find them and send them to you, and then you're going to make them look nice and hope that they, you know, uh, distribute them in the market, right? Exactly, yes. And uh, while well, we all have seen also that uh, today for the consumers, uh, sustainability uh, becomes extremely important, that I think there is uh, uh, something very authentic uh, in this because uh, nobody buys today a Longin watch to uh, uh, put it away after six or 12 months, huh? Uh, this is going from one generation to the other one with the great advantage that it even increases its value. And it has, of course, like you said, uh, also an emotional value. And uh, that gives, I think, uh, a brand a very unique uh, uh, position in, uh, in, in the watch market. Yeah? I think that the, a lot of people have noticed over the course of the pandemic that a lot of the watch brands have used the time to reflect on their business models, reflect on what they're doing, you know, make improvements. Um, and the Swatch Group especially, I think, has taken a good opportunity uh, to do a lot of things internally. What, what are some of those things? What are some of the questions that were asked? What are some of the answers that you guys found out? Everyone you know, always knows that the Swatch Group has uh, a lot of capable people and, and, and are really good at having a long-term vision. Um, what can you share about some of the things that, that the teams were talking about? Well, it's very clear for us uh, that uh, uh, when, because we are talking now also that uh, we are going to bring out uh, in, the, uh, in the coming uh, years uh, products that will remind uh, uh, really this, uh, the, this, uh, this heritage and history of Longines. Uh, so we have now uh, decided for Longines uh, to make uh, uh, developments for the next uh, four or five years uh, of different movements uh, 
to recall this historical parts. Uh, and uh, the first one actually is going to be a movement we are launching in March already this year. Uh, it's an uh, in-house uh, exclusive launch in GMT movement. Uh, and it recalls this history that uh, it was launching, that uh, invented uh, the first uh, GMT movement uh, in uh, 1925. Huh? In 1925, actually, on the wristwatch, uh, the history actually uh, really? showed us that it was even before. It was uh, the first GMT watch that we have found so far in our books uh, uh, dated back to 1908 already. How do you define GMT? This Different people sort of define it differently. Obviously, it means Greenwich Mean Time. It's a watch that has a, an additional time zone. How do you define it? Exactly. But the, the first watch was actually uh, a pocket watch uh, that had really two-hour hands and two-minute hands uh, that were shown on the same pocket watch. Okay. And uh, these watches that were developed in uh, 1908, it was a request from the uh, Sultan uh, of Istanbul. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the request was that they wanted to have a watch uh, that shows uh, uh, what they called the French time, which is the time that uh, we actually are using today, and the, the uh, Osman time uh, by this time that uh, was still related to uh, the sunset and sunrise, uh, and they had oh, to wow. adjust it every year, uh, every day, sorry. And the importance uh, to do this uh, uh, became uh, very important because um, the public transport uh, for trains and uh, boats was uh, increasing rapidly. And of course, uh, it was important that people are on time. Uh, so the conversion of uh, their traditional uh, Osmanic time uh, related to the sunset and sunrise then converted into the French time allowed them to be in time on these uh, public transports. How fascinating. I mean. You're talking about such great stories. Now, what about storytelling? Because I think Longines and many brands, where sometimes they can be so strong with product when it comes to like bigger storytelling, they still haven't really found a strategy in today's sort of digital-first uh, market how to do that. These stories need to be told and retold again and again and again to new generations of watch consumers. It has to be a core part of the brand to always be announcing these things. Um, how do you envision that happening? Well, I think the most important point in storytelling is that these stories need to be authentic. Uh, they need uh, to be authentic, they need to have a substance, and they need to have an honest relationship to the heritage of the brand. Uh, I think the worst is uh, if uh, brands launch products and then they somehow try to create artificially a story around it to make it more interesting. But that is not... Uh, You're talking uh, about every Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but this is, I think, uh, not uh, uh, what uh, the, 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 a brand like Yongshin is about. Uh, so we have really the luxury that uh, our heritage is so rich that we have the luxury to choose from. But, of course, when we are now bringing these products, for example, like I said, this, uh, this uh, GMT watch uh, uh, in March, of course, we are using state-of-the-art technology. So we will use uh, the silicon balance spring. Uh, we will use uh, uh, a movement uh, that is uh, really, uh, I would say, uh, in terms of quality, uh, a super high-end uh, movement in terms of finishing. I mean, of course, we are using not the technology uh, that is almost 100 years ago, uh, but it's uh, it's uh, really... Uh, so really a product-first strategy, really about everything going into making the product amazing. And Swatch Group does that. I, I always repeat to people, when the Swatch Group wants to make the best-in-class product, they do so every single time. I think so, yes, because we have the big advantage that we have a huge uh, industrial base, 
and we make every single component that is in the watch uh, ourselves. Huh? The movements, we make them ourselves, the hands, the dials, uh, the cases, uh, the glasses. Uh, when we have a ceramic uh, bezel, we do it ourselves. Uh, so this is something very unique. Uh, so the industrial park really helps us and we are not dependent. Uh, when we, for example, uh, see an opportunity for new uh, movements, new materials, uh, uh, new developments in any technology field, we are not dependent on the, let's say, uh, decision of somebody else. We decide on ourselves uh, if it's worth or not investing in these uh, technologies. Of course, sometimes uh, you take risks and uh, maybe sometimes uh, you never get uh, what, uh, what you actually were uh, looking for. But if you do not take risks, uh, you don't innovate, and if you do not innovate, I think at a certain time, uh, you start uh, killing the brand. Well, the, the best values um, you know, come from brands like Longines. Like a lot of watch collectors, especially ones that have been collecting for several years, really look at, at the value for money. That's really a big deal for them. And time and time again, across different types of watches you know, in the Swatch group, but especially at Longines, you look at it and you compare it to everything else on the market, and it really is the best for the, the money. Um, do you and the team take a lot of pride in knowing that your products tend to be the best value out there, especially given what they have? Uh, absolutely. I think this is really one of our uh, major uh, uh, points whenever we develop uh, new products also. And we have, I think, something that is very important for us. We have to keep in mind, uh, okay, we are in the price range of 1,000 to 5,000 US dollars. Uh, there's no need to go upscale because there's Omega. There's no need to go down because uh, we have Tissot inside the group. Uh, and we should not forget uh, that uh, 1,000 to 5,000 US dollars for 99% of the population is a lot of money. Huh? Because sometimes I think we are um, uh, taken when you go to a, a watch exhibition, uh, you will see timepieces uh, that retail for 50000 100000 uh, even $500,000. And you could think, well, 1000 to 5000 is nothing. It is for you get You get numb to that. It's a lot of money. So yeah. we really have the challenge to bring for this price positioning where we are the best possible uh, technology. And there we are very proud that, that this ratio... Uh, price uh, value is uh, unmatched uh, for uh, for for this price range uh, where we where we are positioned. Yeah. I, I want to go back to the storytelling element because I think that more and more it's important to tell those stories. Uh, enthusiast communities, media like a blog to watch, we do a lot of that storytelling. Uh, but we've always advised brands to do a lot of the heavy lifting themselves, um, producing film and photographic and documentary um, content on their websites, distributed it out there. You know, we'll, we'll look at a sister company, Omega, for example, um, who, with the connection to NASA and the Apollo missions, has had to continue to tell the story over and over and over and over again. It's been very successful for the branding because it's such a key part of their history, very authentic, but they've also had to tell it again and again and again and again, and they've received a lot of success for doing that. Um, I think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned, especially within the group, because you have equally historically significant stories that can be romanced, and a lot of visuals can be created around that. I know that as a company so focused on manufacturing and distribution and things like that, that's a whole other element. But I'm just I'm interested in how the, the conversations are happening internally, knowing that moving forward, these 
these types of additional media elements that maybe you didn't have to make in the past now probably have to become part of the business model, you know? So I'm just curious what those conversations are like, and your ideas especially. No, this is absolutely true, huh? And we definitely uh, need to repeat, 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 train, train, train. Huh? We need to get also much better in CRM uh, in, uh, in uh, these coming months uh, and years. Uh, and uh, you are totally right, huh? because, for example, this year we are going to launch uh, in March, uh, like I said, this, uh, this uh, in-house uh, GMT movement. But then also we will have uh, uh, in uh, June uh, uh, another model that has an in-house uh, high-frequency uh, movement. Uh, cool. And uh, to, to recall actually this very unique and rich history of launching related to timekeeping. Because um, uh, launching was already in 1914 able uh, to measure uh, in sport events uh, with a precision of one-tenth of a second. In 1916, with one-hundredth of a second. Wow. So that was unique, and they were solicited by all organizers uh, uh, around the world uh, for making, actually, this timekeeping because of its very unique uh, precision. And uh, this was also why Longines then was uh, engaged uh, with almost all sports uh, for many, many years. Uh, uh, and uh, we are now uh, keeping... Two major sports as our marketing and brand pillars, which is equestrian and uh, and uh, skiing. The first uh, timekeeping of equestrian already dates back to 1878, uh, and uh, with skiing to 1924. Wow! So this is really uh, a very rich history, and of course. Uh, uh, since we really had, uh, I would say, a big advance in this uh, high-frequency technology, we are going uh, to uh, integrate it in a uh, wristwatch uh, with uh, a high-frequency movement that we are also uh, presenting in June this year. So we're talking five hertz. Yes. Okay. So that's exciting because sister company Blanc Pond has their five hertz, of course, much higher price point, huge demand in the market, and now everyone that wanted that but couldn't afford at that price point now has a Longines version that has uh, an even more interesting connection to history. But that is, that is part of the strategy, right? There's this, there's this built-in demand for it. People know high frequency. It's an understood um, uh, element of, of mechanical watch movements. And now you sweep in with your version of it, and ostensibly, no one can beat it for the price. So it's sort of a, a very good example of your strategy in action, right? Exactly. But it is, first of all, it's authentic, huh? because uh, it really is... Uh, what Longines made very strong in timekeeping uh, already uh, 100 years ago, or more than 100 years ago. Uh, and we were also in uh, 59, uh, one of the first brands that were able to integrate this technology in the research. So it's authentic, and I think this is the important point uh, when you do things like this, that you just don't do it uh, for the sake of uh, bringing a certain technology, but you are having the heritage uh, behind it, so it's really based uh, on an authentic uh, history. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, 
fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow-in-the-dark face. The blog to watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the blog to watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. One of the things I'm seeing happening more and more each year at Longines coincides with a strategy that other brands have taken, actually almost accidentally, and Omega's done this, Tag Heuer's done this, a few others, and, and the strategy is you have a relatively small part of your production dedicated to these, I'll call them um, uh, collector's watches, and then the rest of your production is more sort of mainstream watches, but the importance of the collector's uh, you know, or the enthusiast-grade watches, if you will, is that it helps create a larger public conversation that trickles down into the mainstream. And so you have to have sort of these two different types of products where they, they appeal to different consumers, but these types of consumer groups kind of work together. For example, uh, we'll look at a brand like Tag Heuer. I know it's a competitor, but the person who buys the enthusiast watch, maybe like the Monaco, likes the fact that the mainstream knows the name. And likewise with Longines, um, you might have like an hour angle watch, right? That's an enthusiast grade watch, it's not for the mainstream. But you like the fact that your cousin probably knows the name Longines. And it's like, oh, that's cool, right? There's a, there's a real value in having a, a, a simultaneous appeal to the enthusiast community and the mainstream. And I'm curious how, how you feel that should be juggled internally at the brand. I, I totally agree because uh, it uh, strongly increases the desirability of the brand. Uh, and uh, that is exactly what it is about today. Uh, uh, and uh, doing uh, some specific uh, or specialities, uh, because not everybody uh, is really uh, fascinated and interested in uh, high-frequency movements or GMT movements or flyback movements. Uh, but uh, I think it gives a, a very dis, uh, strong um, uh, substance to the brand uh, and it makes it uh, a lot more desirable. So does this movement, the new one, the, the GMT one we're talking about, not the high-frequency, does it operate differently? What type of watch is it in? By the time this episode comes out, people have seen it. So explain it from your words. Well, we are actually uh, integrating it in the Spirit line okay. uh, that we just uh, launched uh, two years ago. And that also was actually for us... Uh, uh, That's with the five stars, right? Exactly, yes. Uh, and you know, it was actually very funny because when we started uh, uh, the launch uh, two years ago, everybody said, ah, another watch brand uh, that makes pilot watches. Uh, but when you look at the history, probably the most interesting history, the most history linked to pioneers in aviation, but also maybe in other domains, uh, is the history of launching. Uh, you remember, and you said it um, uh, earlier, uh, we were cooperating with uh, people like uh, Charles Lindbergh, uh, like Weems, uh, like Amelia Earhart, uh, Amy Johnson, Howard Hughes, etc., etc. And that, of course, uh, is something extremely unique uh, uh, that the that the brand gives a credibility that, I mean, if there's a brand that uh, that should make pilot watches, it's Longines. Huh? So we started to do this with uh, the, 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 the Spirit line to recall this strong link with uh, aviation. Uh, and uh, we are continuing it uh, this year with uh, this GMT uh, Zulu watch. Let's talk about design a little bit. Um, these days, 
the story of a watch is sort of the icing on the cake, but the, the real substance of the watch has to be beauty. Watches have to be beautiful. And, and Longines, of course, has a, a beautiful, conservative, classic look to it. Um, but with every new watch, you know, you have to make sure that it's designed well. Talk about how you, you, you come up with new designs, how you check for their beauty, how you make sure that you know, only the most elegant designs uh, succeed to come into market. Well, I think we have uh, some families uh, that have a very distinctive and unique uh, shape that we always respect. Uh, and then we always try to bring some elements uh, uh, that are certainly also for some of the SKUs or part of the collection uh, going together with uh, trends. Uh, for example, this year you will see uh, the Dolce Vita and the Grand Classique uh, with monochrome colors. And uh, when you see today, and this is not only this year, but probably the next uh, few years, uh, the, the, the whole fashion trends are going totally in monochrome. So people dressed up uh, from the bottom to the top uh, with exactly the same color. Huh? And this is exactly what we are also doing with watches, but the possibility also, of course, that you can exchange the bracelets uh, and then really adapt your daily look uh, depending on what uh, your daily plan is. Okay, well, today I'm doing this and this, so this is the hair uh, style I need, this is the makeup, this is the outfit, and this is the right watch. Uh, and this is, I think, something also uh, that is uh, right now on a very trendy side, uh, uh, but uh, uh, it's definitely giving also, uh, I would say, under the Longines umbrella of uh, elegance, which is uh, still our uh, uh, strong uh, slogan that we uh, are having now already for 20 years, and we certainly will keep it for another 20 years, uh, uh, and that is part of it uh, because uh, it makes a watch uh, extremely uh, appealing, uh, trendy, and uh, uh, credible uh, with, uh, with its unique elegance. And where is your own process and product? Um, you know, some managers, you know, don't really care. Some are like intense product people. Where do you get your fingers involved in the product development process? Well, I think uh, it's uh, one of my uh, major uh, uh, occupation. So you enjoy uh, company. It. I first of all I enjoy it, but secondly we have, uh, uh, and this is my role, is to put a good team in place uh, uh, to do the job. Uh, and uh, in launching, uh, I must say that was for me also a, a, a very positive surprise when I joined the company. Uh, that uh, the team is extremely strong, extremely capable. Uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, if uh, uh, you challenge them, like, for example, now using this uh, heritage bar even more in the, in the, in the future, uh, that is for them uh, then a huge uh, challenge and motivates them uh, uh, to, uh, to, to really move forward. Huh? But without a motivated team, uh, you, you don't have any sort of success. Do you ever think about making watches to go with your hobbies? It's actually been such a, a popular product development strategy. Um, you know, you mentioned you like skiing, for example, and you're like, you know what? I'd like one of our newest watches to be one that I can wear skiing. Um, do, you, do you sort of do that process? Like, what are your hobbies and, and what types of watches would you like to go with those hobbies? Well, aside, uh, I would say I'm on a personal side very much interested in history, which is good because uh, the heritage of uh, Longines. It's a good uh, hobby. I also like a lot of contemporary art. In, in terms of sports, my two favorite sports uh, are uh, snow skiing and water skiing. And uh, both uh, uh, were actually uh, sports uh, that were timed uh, uh, by Longines uh, for many, many years. Uh, cool. We are still in skiing uh, with... Uh, 
our cooperation with the FISA. So we are timing all the uh, World Cup around the, 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 the world. Uh, in water skiing, the sport uh, has really, I would say, uh, a much uh, uh, smaller appeal because it's uh, it's it's uh, you need really a, an infrastructure to do water skiing that is not uh, not very easy uh, to install. I personally love it, uh, and uh, uh, yes, we are going to develop uh, also uh, for these domains uh, uh, watches that are clearly related uh, to the sports. Uh, of course, I mean, uh, the water sports uh, are related also to diving watches. Diving watches today, they are uh, extremely popular. For us, uh, one of our top sellers is uh, the Hydro Conquest. But what makes Longines so different and unique is we are one of the very few brands that also have a vintage diving watch, uh, the Legend Diver. Yeah. And that is, I think, also something that allows us again to tell about the very rich history that is already back to the uh, 30s because we have already... Uh, in the 30s, uh, patents uh, uh, to protect that we were the first brand able uh, to have a watch case uh, with uh, uh, a chronograph with pushers that were water resistant. Uh, then uh, it continued the relationship for diving watches uh, uh, during the Second World War. The cooperation was very strong, for example, with uh, the uh, uh, British Army where uh, we developed uh, special watches uh, for uh, the Frogman that was a special entity that had the mission to uh, picture actually all the, uh, the, the, the beaches uh, along the Normandy oh, to cool. prepare then uh, the, uh, the landing of the Allied forces. Uh, and that continued then uh, with the Legend Diver. Uh, and uh, the Legend Diver now is uh, since uh, more than 60 years uh, actually uh, in the same design as it was 60 years ago still on the market and of course uh, this year also with uh, some uh, i would say very very exciting color scheme uh, we bring it uh, we make it the whole collection even more attractive so how does some of these trends with collectors end up trickling down to the mainstream or do you continue to find that what collectors want is different than what mainstream maybe the mainstream is more fashion focused where collectors are more history focused can you blend the two or do you always have to ostensibly make different watch models for both markets well, we do both, yes, definitely. Uh, for example, this year also we are celebrating on our 190th birthday of the company. So we will bring out uh, uh, for this uh, a special limited edition watch, 18 karat gold, uh, uh, related to the history because it has a very unique dial that was used at a very early uh, stage for pocket watches. Uh, and uh, we have... At the same time, so these will be the two limited pieces, but then we have also a stainless steel piece that will not be limited. So that will be uh, definitely in our collection uh, for a longer time. I know that in a lot of Asian markets, Longines is incredibly popular. What do you feel that the brand has done so well in those markets and how can you use some of those lessons for other markets that you might be trying to develop today and in the near future? Well, I think, first of all, the brand was already present in these markets at a very early stage, uh, when many of the other brands were still uh, focusing on uh, Europe or the United States. So you had like a head start. I think that was uh, we were there very early. And secondly, uh, the style of the watches uh, perfectly met uh, really the expectations of the consumers there. And we are now uh, uh, trying also to uh, take these styles that uh, years back were sold uh, uh, only in a few regions to modify them in terms of uh, uh, the, the dial design, the hand design, uh, the bracelet design, uh, the strap design uh, to make them also very attractive uh, for uh, the U.S., uh, for uh, European countries. 
Is there something to be said about having fundamentally different product collections for different parts of the world? Because we know that no matter what, people in different regions are going to have different tastes and different watches are going to appeal to them. So something that might do really well in parts of Asia simply won't do as well in parts of North America. It just won't be. So is there something to be said about having watches that are literally just distributed to certain parts of the world, they don't need to be global products, and that that is an interesting business model because it creates more diversity, um, more, more sort of specific relationships with dem different demographics that can be valuable. I I've always just contemplated this might be an interesting idea. It goes against sort of the, the modular concept that everybody wants to do now, but I'd love your thoughts on that. But all I can say, it, it changes a lot. For example, you remember that, uh, I don't know, 10, 20 year, years back in Europe or the US, big watches were very popular. Now the size is getting smaller, maybe also because of the interest for vintage watches. Now in Asia, they usually had smaller watches, but the trend there is now they get interested in bigger watches. Uh, our top seller that I told you, the Hydro Conquest, uh, is not only a top seller in the US and Europe, but also in Asia. So it's getting, uh, I would say, uh, a little bit more homogeneous. There still are differences, very clear. For example, in the past, uh, uh, typically because also of the climate, huh? uh, steel, uh, bracelet steel uh, was uh, more popular in Asian countries uh, than, uh, than uh, leather because uh, also with the climate uh, when it was yeah. humid. But there is no, also somebody explained me this uh, 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 when I was the last time uh, in Asia, it's very popular now also in Asia to have um, uh, leather straps because uh, it shows uh, that you have a high position because you're working in an air-conditioned office. Uh, so it's actually also very important to have uh, leather, leather bracelets. Yeah, if you don't have leather that's all, you know, distressed and coming apart, like we've all seen those. But here in LA, where it's relatively dry, you don't see this problem so much. No, here not. No, yeah, no. and in Europe, of course, which is colder and it's, it, it's not as effective. So you're right, there's a lot of environmental reasons uh, why watches are very, very different. Um, you said that Longines had some interesting story here in the Los Angeles area. We're just going to a different part of the world. I, I'm actually just curious, what is that story? Uh, yes, it was actually funny because, uh, because uh, uh, when, when I arrived in Los Angeles, uh, I recalled uh, this, uh, this uh, very, very nice story that started or that dates back to 1927 uh, when Albert Einstein bought uh, uh, a Longines watch, uh, an 18-carat uh, wristwatch watch. Uh, they were actually, he bought two Longines watches. The one is a pocket watch that is still in the museum uh, in Bern, in Switzerland. And the second one was a wristwatch uh, that he engraved also uh, with uh, Einstein. And he was wearing this watch uh, for, for, for many years. Uh, and uh, he bought it himself in uh, 1927. Then he moved actually with his whole family to Los Angeles uh, because uh, they were uh, researching in this uh, nuclear program. Um, and uh, when he was here in Los Angeles, he felt uh, terribly in love uh, with uh, a woman uh, that was uh, unfortunately not uh, his wife, uh, but, but apparently sort of these things happen. This was common for physicists, by the way. This wasn't just <laughs> Einstein. There was a lot of physicists that were enjoying women. That was a thing at the time. I'm, I don't know why. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. Then what actually happened was uh, that uh, he was with her then for many years, uh, uh, having a relationship here in, uh, in Los Angeles. But after the Second World War, uh, this lady, she was Russian. Uh, she went back uh, to Russia. 
And he gifted this wristwatch uh, to her. And then it turned out a few years later that uh, she was uh, a spy. Wow. Uh, and uh, she was actually sent to Los Angeles to find out about this uh, nuclear program. And uh, he presented actually her, I think, to the whole team, uh, also to uh, yeah, oh, Oppenheimer and all the other ones uh, that were actually uh, researching at the same time here in Los Angeles, uh, which then, of course, uh, was a bit uh, embarrassing. Uh, and uh, then we have lost a little bit uh, track of the lady and the watcher. Then Longin got a phone call uh, in 2005 uh, uh, from uh, a, a person that was living in uh, New York. It turned out later that this person was uh, the grandson of uh, this lady. Uh, we have not researched who the father was, but uh, he contacted Longin and because he said, I have a watch. It's marked uh, Einstein. Can you check if this watch is authentic? So he sent the watch to Longin. Uh, we checked it. Uh, we took it apart. Verified all the components, and yes, he was authentic. And then he said, uh, "Are you interested to buy it?" And he said, "Yes, of course. Uh, we would uh, love to buy the watch." And we made an offer to him. Unfortunately, in the meantime, he was already in contact with an auction house, uh, and the auction house said, "No, no, no, no. This is this is a lot more worth. Uh, he should make an auction." Uh, and if Longin wants to buy it, they can participate in the auction. And then, yes, it turned out it was true because in 2006 the watch was. Uh, uh, auction for more than 600,000 US dollars, uh, which by that time was really a lot of money. Huh? And uh, we actually contacted uh, the uh, uh, owner of this uh, watch uh, uh, recently because uh, we want, of course, uh, uh, to take uh, exact pictures of this original Einstein watch uh, uh, with a project that we have uh, uh, for the future. And uh, they actually came to visit us uh, in uh, Saint-Imier uh, three weeks ago, and we showed them also the museum. Oh, so recently, very recently. Yes, it was very recently. And uh, they uh, is the owner in Switzerland? Uh, well, we cannot say uh, anything about uh, these uh, these new owners, uh, uh, but they came to Saint-Imier. We showed them also the museum, uh, the, all the, the documentation we have about this watch. Uh, uh, and they were super impressed uh, with, uh, with uh, of course, seeing all this uh, this department, like uh, what I mentioned also earlier, uh, where we are still able to restore all these pieces. Wow, that's so. You have the watch now for restoration. We had it, and uh, now it's again back uh, to the owners of it. Uh, but uh, we have, of course, now uh, uh, I would say uh, good material uh, okay. for the project that we would like to realize in the future. Huh? So I'll tell you, you may not know this, but um, I have a book called "The World's Most Expensive Watches." And it's mostly new watches, but I had a very small amount of like vintage watches. The 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 Longines Einstein watches in there. So in my book, it has for the auction amount. You're right; it was you know several hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And it was in there, and so I'm just telling you that uh, this little bit of history is actually in my book, which is floating around out there. So thank you for reminding me of that story. I did, I forgot about the LA connection there. Um, that was a cool one. And yes, one of many people throughout history that, you know, we're doing these amazing things and looking at their wrist on a regular basis and seeing the Longines name. A, a lot to steward, a lot to steward. So what are, what are some of the next steps? You mentioned coming out with the, the Zulu Time Watch as the in-house GMT, high frequency. How ahead are you, are you planning right now? Months, years? No, here clearly for movements, we are planning years uh, ahead. Uh, so we have now uh, a project and a program uh, for these exclusive in-house movements uh, already uh, in place uh, for the next five years. Yeah. Now, 
from a consumer's perspective, I think one of the biggest challenges today is what I call when to buy. Um, there's so many watches coming out all the time. It's becoming a little bit intimidating. In fact, we've noticed elements of choice paralysis where people are sitting back not buying because they're afraid that next week something they want even more is going to come out. Um, and I see this as being a bigger problem. And, and I wanted to know your own thoughts on the matter because I feel that having like one or two launch periods per brand per year helps consumers wrap their mind around everything you're going to do that year and feel a little bit more comfortable of buying something. Yet others say, no, keep releasing new things all the time. I'm just curious what your feelings are on the matter. But I think this is uh, one of the biggest art in product development is to make sure that the pieces are timeless. And um, I have also several launching watches, uh, but uh, I uh, change them uh, almost every day uh, because uh, uh, I think the, 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 the great work in product development has been done when the watch is not only attractive today, but also in 20 years from now. And this is, I think, uh, true for a lot of, uh, of, uh, of Longines watches. When you see now the interest also in vintage pieces, the success uh, of our recently opened uh, collection, collector's corner in the Geneva boutique, uh, and this is definitely a challenge, a permanent challenge in product development, and I think so far we have uh, mastered this quite well in Longines. Eh? I'm actually remembering a watch that was a, a part of, the, I think it's the Heritage Collection that came out a few years ago that I missed. I wanted to buy it. I couldn't get it. It had the cushion case, and it was originally made for some military. Um, but you do that thing. I don't know if you're going to continue doing that, but you'd come out with some remake of a heritage model, make it as a limited edition, uh, and they just sort of do that. Is that, is, that sounds like that's going to be actually more amplified and more part of the permanent strategy as opposed to the sort of like side little heritage collection, as you called it. Well, actually, the piece that you're referring to is a super interesting piece from several uh, standpoints. Okay, because, so you like that one as well. Uh, yes, because uh, it's a piece that actually, we call it Majetek, huh? and this is also the, 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 That's the right. name that the collectors uh, are calling it. It's very, very interesting because this piece uh, was uh, using a turning bezel, and it was really the first watch that was having a turning bezel. That was in 1935. Huh? And uh, in the first step, it was used uh, for uh, navigation, either by pilots uh, or uh, uh, also for, for, for boats, uh, uh, because uh, uh, it, when you were turning the vessel, there was uh, a, um, a triangle uh, that actually then uh, uh, allowed you to set the time uh, at the precise moment uh, 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 for your navigation. And uh, the watch was actually very interesting because uh, it was worn uh, by uh, the Czech pilots. The, the Czech army uh, actually bought this watch for all uh, their pilots. Uh, and uh, when these pilots, uh, uh, after uh, Czechia was then occupied uh, by uh, the German uh, army, uh, they went uh, to uh, Great Britain and uh, they were actually fighting uh, with their airplanes uh, then for Great Britain against Germany. And they were extremely successful, very courage people, and they had all this uh, Magitech watch. So the history is fantastic uh, uh, with uh, it. The technology innovation by this time is super interesting. So yes, uh, it's, uh, I would say, very logic that we will also have a project for this uh, particular oh, watch in the future. Oh, good. I'll get a second chance then. That's fantastic. I, I love to hear that. I see you smiling right now because 
you're talking about product, right? And I can see how much you enjoy it. When you talk to CEOs and other brands and probably in other groups that don't like product, do you, do you feel that they're fundamentally always going to be behind the curve, right? Because there are those managers out there that just don't understand what it's like to be a consumer. I'm sure you must get a little bit of a giggle sometimes because you recognize their job is 50 times harder now, right? Well, I think a CEO for a watch brand that is uh, not taking care of product development uh, should change the job. Okay, that's a very strong opinion. You're probably right. You're probably right. I just, you know, I, I interview a lot of CEOs, and there's a lot of amazing CEOs out there, but there's certain uh, brands that actually believe it's okay to hire too much from the outside. And what we know in the, in the watch industry, especially the Swatch Group, is, this is there's a culture. It's not just an industry or a category. You can't just go from cars or shoes or cosmetics to watches and just figure it all out. It's a culture that you need to understand. And yet there still seems to be uh, a lot of even Swiss brands hiring people from outside of the culture, thinking that, oh, in six months, yeah, they'll figure out the culture. Yet that's not how it works at all. And, and what is it in, in the Swatch Group that allows to the continuation of this culture? How do you, um, you know, use, I don't know what, uh, maybe educational events or seminars, but how do you perpetuate the watchmaking culture in the group? I've always been curious. You know, I think the, it's very important, and you're totally right. Huh? It's not only passion that uh, you need uh, to uh, to get into or to have the sensibility of the Swiss watch industry. I remember uh, one experience, uh, and uh, that is uh, something we systematically do in the Swatch Group, uh, uh, and also in Longin, of course. Uh, um, and for me, that was an experience uh, that totally changed the, the perception of uh, watches in general. It was actually at the very beginning for everybody that joins our company. Uh, we uh, uh, asked them to take a class uh, in, uh, in, uh, to learn more about watches. And there is a first class where you learn really the basics, uh, the difference of quartz watches, mechanical watches, etc., etc. It's, it's like an internal group class. Exactly, yeah. yes. It's a new two days uh, class. Uh, and by the end of this, uh, uh, the second day, every participant gets a pocket watch and has to disassemble the pocket watch and reassemble it again. And I think from this moment, your appreciation for micromechanic, your appreciation for the work of watchmakers, the appreciation of the technology this is, that it is inside a watch, but also to learn that there is a life inside a mechanical watch. There is a heart that beats inside this watch. It's an emotional product. And this class, for me, totally changed my perception for mechanical watches. And I think this is something that, uh, uh, of course, when you come from the outside, you can, you can learn this, you can get into this, uh, but you need to make sure you have this when you take over the helmet of a brand. That's excellent to hear that there's actually some internal education and things like that um, that helps that. And I think that's so crucial, and I'm so happy to hear that because you're right. If you're a watch brand CEO and you don't even understand the basics of what it's like to be a watchmaker... How can, you, how can you lead such a company like this? Moving forward, um, I think that Longines has, of course, so many opportunities out there, but we're going to live in a world where watch culture is, is, is increasingly different. Uh, around the year 2000 or so, 
you know, the joke was that, you know, babies born today will have no idea what a wristwatch is. That turned out to be um, very wrong. And actually, babies today know a lot more about wristwatches than the ones born at the time. So watches are becoming such a big part of, of culture again. And we know that people, because of smartwatches, are focusing on the wrist again. So much more of attention on the wrist. And we also know that people that like smartwatches end up uh, being interested in traditional watches when they don't always want to wear their smartwatch because it's not so fashionable. So as we end this show, what are some of your, you know, predictions or outlooks or just what you hope is going to happen in the next five years for an industry that might not necessarily look the same as it did just a couple years ago, but definitely still has so much relevance in the marketplace. So what are your thoughts on that? But the trend that uh, I see currently is uh, that uh, our clientele for mechanical watches is getting younger and younger. Uh, they are getting a lot more knowledgeable about the watch, which is fantastic for us because they appreciate uh, and they, uh, they have a sensitivity uh, for, for example, the heritage of a brand. Uh, and uh, uh, they totally are now uh, in a perception of watches that is not that they are buying uh, uh, a tool that tells them uh, the time, but it's a lot more. It's really the perfect accessory that you can buy and wear on your wrist uh, to make a personal statement. Uh, and I think it's in particular true uh, for, for men uh, because in very many professions uh, we are submitted to a strict dress code. Uh, we have a, a dark suit, a light shirt, uh, uh, and uh, one of the very few accessories uh, that allow us to tell something about us is a watch. And uh, for women, maybe it's a little bit more easier, but even for them, the, I see a clear trend that now our clientele becomes younger, more and more interested also in mechanical watches, uh, and they are more and more knowledgeable as well. And that is actually for us uh, very positive uh, because... Uh, if we are able to reach this younger clientele, of course, we need now also uh, to adapt uh, our marketing uh, mix uh, uh, to reach them better, uh, to adapt also to their expectations better. But this is the great news for us today is the appreciation for mechanical watches is increasing and it's increasing among young consumers. This has been a conversation with Matthias Breschen, CEO of Longines. You can go to the Longines website to check out their latest watches and go to blogtowatch.com to read the latest reviews. Matthias, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>